welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at uh, Celebration Church. Hey, Bob, somebody want to turn on that monitor so I can see how pretty I look? <laughs> My hair's not seeing this. It's the only mirror I got. Who knows what happens? Uh, glad that you're here. We are now through our uh, summer break, which is sad <laughs> from Green Bay because now it's going to start getting colder. But uh, anyway, we're back uh, uh, past the, uh, there I am past the uh, summer break, and now we're back into our Wednesday night Bible studies, and we're glad that you're part of it. Welcome our campuses uh, that are watching as well, and all you guys here, uh, people all over the world actually watch this. I'm stunned at how many emails and stuff that we get. On occasion, I'll get people who will uh, moan and groan just a bit. I shouldn't say moan and groan. They, they, sh- they share their concern. <laughs> because they want this service to be more of a worship service. Why don't we have the music and all this other kind of stuff? Well, because it's not a worship service. It's a Bible study. That's what it is. So it's just very relaxed at your campuses. Maybe you're in a smaller room, you know, without all the big hoopla, everybody sitting around, smaller campuses, you should be able to have pizza and hand it around. Well, I don't know what all you're doing, but it's just a time to sit down, and together we're just going to go through the Bible and explain what's in the Bible. Uh, You should not live your entire Christian life and not ever read the whole Bible, which the majority of Christians, that's exactly what they do. Uh, Some feel overwhelmed to do it. What we do, if you just come on Wednesday nights, you will read through the entire Bible. We've already gone through the entire Old Testament. Now we're going through the New Testament. What happens after we do that? We're going to go back to the Old Testament because this stuff takes years at a time. And uh, so now, uh, where we're at, for those of you who are, because there's always new people coming, uh, what we do, what we're, we're doing now is going through the New Testament. What we've done is we started in the book of Acts. We skipped the Gospels because we've done that as well. Uh, maybe we'll go back and do a Gospel or something. But anyway, uh, we started the book of Acts, which is the historical record of how the church got started. And what we did is what we're doing is as we're going through the book of Acts, every time we get to the point in the historical account of the church, that they wrote an epistle, which is a fancy word for a letter, which is what the rest of the New Testament is, are these letters, then we go and read that letter. So we're actually going through the New Testament in chronological order, which we try to do as well in the Old Testament. It's a little frustrating that the Bible actually is not in chronological order. It just makes it harder. Like, who thought of this, you know? It's like, hello? So things are totally jacked up and out of order. So if you just sit there and read the Bible from beginning to end, there's parts that won't make any sense whatsoever because it's like reading a story where you're reading the chapters all in different orders that it would be very complicated. Why they did it, I don't know. Despite my advanced age, I wasn't there when they put it all together. So, you know, the Jewish Bible is laid out like this and then the I guess they wanted to keep up with the Jews, so they put it out of order as well. I don't know what the deal. The only thing that really is any kind of order, the Gospels start, then the book of Acts, that's the first order, and then it ends with the book of Revelation, which is the last. So there's parts of it, and the same with the Old Testament, starts with Genesis, that's the first five books are in order, ends with Malachi, all all that was right, everything in between is totally jacked up. So what we're trying to do is put it in order. So now what we've been doing is we're going through the book of Acts, and as we've done that, we've... uh, gone through some of these letters that were written. The very first letter written was the letter written by James, the epistle of James. Uh, if you missed that, you know, you can go back and check it out online or whatever. 
Uh, and you can see right away, because James starts out writing, and the first thing he says, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Why would he talk that? Because he's literally writing to Jewish Christians. This is a time in the early church, they didn't even think you could be a Christian if you weren't Jewish. So the very first book written in the Bible, again, not in order, but if it, was, it would make sense, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered all over the place and writing to these Jewish Christians that came along. So then the very next letter, you know, Paul the Apostle comes along and he starts preaching and then non-Jews start becoming Christians. Well, the previous bunch of Christians got mad because they said, well, you guys need to become Jewish first. That's when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, which is a hilarious read because he's mad as a hornet arguing that they don't have to become Jewish first. Praise the Lord. All right. That's why we don't do that stuff. So he goes through the whole thing. Uh, and there's the early big drama in Christian history is this fight over how much of Judaism do we still have to recognize? And the really bottom line is almost none of it. All right? If you've missed that, we'll, we'll catch up in bits and pieces again. So anyway, so that was Galatians. Then uh, Paul starts out on his missionary journeys. Paul, is, as we read through the book of Acts, we see three significant missionary journeys. Paul's first missionary journey, second missionary, and his third. We are now in the middle of his third missionary journey. Let me show you where we've been so far. Uh, Paul actually hangs out. Here's Jerusalem down here. Paul and, and where he's hanging out are all up in Antioch. Antioch really becomes the center of the Christian world uh, in terms of ministry, more so than Jerusalem. So then Paul goes on his first missionary journey. It's kind of a little romp. He goes here. He goes with Barnabas. You hear about Paul and Barnabas. He and Barnabas go to uh, Cyprus, and uh, they come up here go back and forth a little bit, and then they eventually sail back to Antioch. Ta-da! He has his first missionary journey, and everybody is shocked because they're going to places where Judaism is not, they're preaching about Christianity. Christianity has had no uh, uh, outlet at all. So we're going to people that have never heard anything about Jesus and seeing what happens. And what happens is people started getting converted by just tons of people were coming to, to Christianity as they're preaching, preaching the gospel. So he comes back to Antioch and says, holy cow, what a blast. That was awesome. Everywhere we went, people were received. There were miracles happening. It's highly entertaining. Some of it is uh, even funny as we've read some of these stories. So then, after being back in Antioch a while, they said, and, and by the way, the very first journey, the Holy Spirit told them to do this. Well, after that, they didn't wait for the Holy Spirit to tell them to do it. Everything doesn't have to be a word from God which is a good lesson in all this, because the other ones, there were no, or very little, certainly the second one, there was no voice or anything, no Holy Spirit leading. They just said, let's go do it again. So you don't have, you know, Jesus gave us the instructions. We need to go get the instructions, okay? You know, someone gives you instructions. They don't need to tell you the instructions every time. Somebody say amen. All right, don't just sit around and not do anything. Oh, I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me what to do. You're a slacker, all right? So, they want to go on the second missionary journey and say, well, let's go back and visit these guys, see how they're doing. Well, Paul and Barnabas have this big fight. <gasps> Christians fought? Yes. <laughs> back then, even like they do today. And you shake your head and think, really? Really? You got to fight so much you can't get along? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So they had this big fit, 
And uh, it was over this guy named John Mark. Now you think anybody named Mark would bring peace everywhere, right? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> so what happens on this first missionary journey, John Mark, you know, who knows what happened? He got lonely. Maybe he got sick. Maybe, you know, he got the hives. I have no idea. He goes running back to Jerusalem. Well, Paul was really ticked about it. And Barnabas said, look, let's go again. Let's, let's get John Mark and go again. Well, Paul, I'm not taking him. He abandoned us the first place. Now, really, you'd think, wait a minute. If I'm preaching, what about forgiveness, right? They understand forgiveness. Get over. I'm just telling you, these people had issues just like you and I have issues. Anyway, so Barnabas grabs John and says, well, we're going to take John Mark and we're going to go back. So second time around, he goes here. Well, Paul doesn't. So he goes this way. And he goes up and visits these churches going this way. Well, then he extends it out and he goes over here. I'm sorry, goes way up in here into uh, uh, Macedonia, is what it's called, and then down into Greece, uh, over to Ephesus, and then visits Jerusalem for a bit, and then goes back to Antioch and shares the story. And there's been really some dramatic stories, events, uh, during that second missionary journey. And this is where he goes to Thessalonia and, and different places. And then the next book that he writes is the letter to the Thessalonians. We write first and second Thessalonians. So this is all very early in Christianity. Now, when he gets to first Thessalonians, it's like the whole issue of the big fight over Judaism has kind of settled down. Now they're getting down to just the theology of Christianity. And he starts writing in the Thessalonians how we should live as Christians. That's why you want to read the Bible. It gives us the answer. They give us the blueprint. This is how we should do this. It's really not very complicated. But if you don't know, you don't know. And if you don't know, you're not going to find out unless you find out. That's why you're here. So praise the Lord for that. So anyway, they did that. So now he goes to, and he starts this church in Corinth. And there's like this major, I mean, when these guys preached, there were miracle stuff. I mean, it was crazy. Because they were in this pagan world. And they would basically argue with them and say, well, Jesus isn't real. So yes, he is. And they say, no, he isn't. And then Paul would heal somebody who was sick. And they'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, just this miraculous stuff. So people start converting to Christianity in huge numbers. Because up to this point, they've been doing pagan religions and all kinds of crazy stuff, trying to get a God somewhere to pay attention to them and to answer their prayers. Well, by and large, nothing happens. It's like when Hazm was here saying about the Muslims. You know, they pray and pray and pray, but then it's just nothing but crickets because they don't get really answers to prayer like we get. In Christianity, God shows up. Things actually happen. You put faith in God. So these people are responding to this in huge numbers. Uh, and a certain amount of persecution starts coming with it too. Anyway, so he starts this church in Corinth and uh, goes to Ephesus and, and then comes back here. Well, when, uh, on his third missionary journey now, uh, which is where we're at, he takes off, he goes back to these familiar places, Derby, Lystra, uh, whatever, and then he cuts across and he goes to Ephesus. When he's in Ephesus, um, he hears about problems in Corinth. Corinth is having problems. The Corinthian church is having problems. And uh, so he writes, uh, well, uh, you know, he writes a letter to the Corinthians that we don't know, no one has ever been able to find. The reason we know it is because in the first letter of Corinthians, we call it first Corinthians, I guess really it's second Corinthians, but it's only first because that's all we have. He refers to this letter that he sent to them before. And uh, what did he say? 
Well, all he says about the letters is, look, I told you, he was warning them about sexual immorality. Immorality was a big problem, you know, kind of like today. And uh, so he's writing the church, guys, guys, you can't do that. Christian people don't do that. So he says, I wrote you in this letter that you're not supposed to be sexually immoral. You shouldn't be hanging around with sexually immoral people. Why? Because it will affect you. We, while we need to love everybody, we're not like everybody. See, Jesus said you're in the world, but you're not of the world. We don't need to get extreme and, you know, you know God bless them, you know, like the uh, Amish where they don't take any electricity and still have horses and buggies and, you know, they're, they're so separate from everything else. Well, in a way, it's kind of neat, but they're irrelevant in terms of changing the world because they've decided to just wall themselves off, even though they're Christian people. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be in the world, and we all are, and you all work in the world, and you all have people around you that aren't Christians and stuff like that. We're supposed to affect them, but we're not supposed to live like them. We're supposed to be different. And it really starts in this area of sexual immorality because that's the thing most people get pulled into even back 2,000 years ago. So Paul says, you know, don't do it. Well, then later a delegation from Corinth comes to Ephesus because Paul's hanging out at Ephesus for a while. And uh, they ask him a bunch of questions. You know, we got issues, we're having problems. And then that's when Paul writes... 1 Corinthians, which we just finished. If you missed it, it was really highly entertaining <laughs> because you talk about a bunch of jacked up people. You know, 1 Corinthians is probably the most encouraging book in the Bible for any pastor because sometimes we think we're messing up and people have issues and they're not getting this and, oh, if we were just more spiritual, they wouldn't have these problems. Yeah, read 1 Corinthians. These people were a mess. They were fighting with each other. They had their own cliques and stuff and going at each other's throats. They were taking each other to court and suing each other. They were being sexually immoral. These guys were stopping because it was the culture of the day. There were prostitutes everywhere. These guys would literally stop by, check out the prostitutes, hang out with them for a while, and do you know what, and then go to church. And Paul says, have you lost your ever-loving mind? In a nicer way than I just said it. But anyway, so... And then they are, you know, they have all these other issues and the marriages are having problems. And uh, when they would have communion, they'd make it a big party. Because remember, the first communion was actually a supper. It's called the Last Supper. It wasn't a little wafer and a little thimble, all right? It was... A full-blown, actually, it was, it was the, the Passover meal. They all sat down, they ate, there's all this stuff. And, and Jesus, when he started handing out the bread, he said, this is my body. And they all ate. He said, eat this. You know, they were eating a whole bunch of bread. Drink the wine. You know, they all drank the wine. All this was a, a big meal. So early communion, that's what they did. It was kind of like the first version of a potluck. <laughs> it was. They'd get together. But Paul starts writing to him, and he's furious because... They're having these big feasts. They're calling it communion. Some people are getting food. Other people aren't getting food. Some people got almost nothing or little. Other people are pigging out like crazy. And some people really got into the wine. And they were getting drunk. That's what we were reading. So they're, you think, we got issues. At least no one's getting hammered during the service. So 
So these guys, they're getting hammered, and Paul is livid. And he's just reaming on these people to stop it. And he promises some big curses on people who do that. Well, nobody wants a big curse on them. We're all trying to avoid damnation. <laughs> so that's when we went to the little wafer <laughs> and the little thing. We're not making this a big supper anymore. So from that point on, for the last 2,000 years, it's just been the little bread and the little wine, just in remembrance of Jesus. That's how all that changed so dramatically. Anyway, he wrote all kinds of rules about how the church should function. Uh, some of it uh, we still pay attention to today because of major threats that he said that, that would put your soul in danger. And others, we don't really pay that much attention today because we don't even understand what he was talking about. That, that's when he says that men shouldn't wear a hat when they're in church. Anybody wear a hat? You sent it right there. No, I don't care. Go ahead. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody pays. And all the ladies should wear hats. You can't give everybody a hat. There, put it on his wife. <laughs> so, so, and, and that was a tradition for some time. Even when I was growing up in the Catholic church, the women all had hats and veils and stuff like that. That was a big deal. Then they got away from that. And I don't know hardly any Christians anywhere in the world today. There's a few small segments that they still enforce the rules. Uh, as we read the rule and we studied it, why don't we pay attention to it? We don't even, I, it doesn't make any sense. Even when he's explaining it, we don't know what he's talking about. Now, there's theologians that say they know what it means. Hogwash. They don't know it any more than anybody else. And the theologians can't agree with each other anyway. So it's one of those things we know. That's where Paul said, uh, we don't allow women to speak in church. If they have questions, ask at home. Well, it can't mean that women weren't allowed to talk in church because he talked about women should have their heads covered when they prophesy. Hard to speak and encourage people in the spirit when you can't talk. So they talked, but so what is he talking about? Well, obviously he was talking about women. What did he say? What does that mean? I don't know. And it was irritating Paul and said, stop it. If you got questions, ask at home. I don't know. Anyway, so there were some of those things, again, we don't really deal with it. And when he wrote, wrote about marriage and stuff, it, this was really highly confusing <laughs> and gave me a headache the whole time we were studying it. But anyway, so that was Paul writing to the Corinthians the first time, just trying to jerk the slack out of them because they are a mess. And sexually immoral, he's writing about one guy who's having sex with either his mother or his stepmom. We don't know. He doesn't say. Either way, it's gross. The first version is really gross. Paul is furious about it and said, take that guy and throw him out of the church. Turn him over to the devil. I mean, he was intense. He's mad. So the whole thing of 1 Corinthians is Paul jerking the slack out of these Christians. Again, I read the Corinthians. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> we have our issues, but we ain't doing what some of them are doing. Thanks be to God. I found some of you guys are going to prostitutes before you come to church. I'm going to throttle you. So... <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, so in many ways, we're much more spiritual <laughs> than they were. Uh, but at the same time, they still had God moving and neat things were happening and miracles were happening, which is a big statement because at the end of the day, you know one of the reasons why people don't expect more miracles in churches than in their lives is because we think we don't deserve it. I mean, it is at some level. Say, well, well, God won't do that for me. I, I kicked the dog when I came home tonight I told my husband he was a moron. And, you know, so we all carry this guilt and stuff. And we just think, well, God, listen, 
if God could do all the incredible miracles he was doing with the Corinthians, I'm pretty sure he can do it with us. All right. But back then, they expected it and they believed it would happen, despite who they were. Because they understood grace. See, sometimes we don't really understand. We talk about grace, but at some point, we still struggle with it because we think, you know, the only way I'd ever have a miracle is if I fast and prayed for 30 days straight and all that. You know what I'm saying? So our expectation becomes very low. Uh, but if you learn anything from reading the Corinthians is that uh, even as jacked up as they were, and they were by far more jacked up than we are, we don't have anything in our church compared to what these guys did. But yet their expectation for God to do miracles in their lives was extremely high. And God always responds to faith. And that's why they had so many miracles and stuff. So anyways, it's all interesting. All right, so we go back to Acts. We're finding out what's happening. Uh, Paul, uh, he's here now on the third journey. He stops at Ephesus again. Uh, That's when they deal with the Corinthians and stuff like that. And then at some point, uh, he starts heading up to uh, Troas here, and then back into Macedonia, and then eventually back into um, uh, Greece here, which is where the Corinthian church is, all right? So actually, okay, we're in 2 Corinthians. So what happens is he gets, he gets here, and that's when he writes the other letter of the Corinthians, uh, threatening to come and kick their butts. And that's really what he does. And, and you'll, we're going to read it as we read 2 Corinthians. Uh, we left off in chapter 2 last time, so we're going to pick it up. Um, uh, let's start chapter 2, verse 3. So we're going to back up a little bit just to give you some of the context. Paul writes, I wrote as I did so that when I came... I would not be distressed by those of you who should have made me rejoice. He's, kind of, he's apologizing for writing such a really intense letter. Now, as I was studying for this, some theologians, and they all have different versions, so it'll all give you a headache at some point, but some theologians think there were four letters to the Corinthians. There was the one he admits that he wrote that we haven't seen, so we know it's there. Then we got the first, and then he talks about the second, about this letter that he was really mean, and they think that's a missing letter. But I think they're misin- misinterpreting. The first letter was really mean. If you understand what he was saying in the first letter, you understand that's the letter he's talking about. I don't think there was another missing letter anywhere. So anyway, uh, verse 4, he says, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So I don't think this is a missing letter. I think this is exactly, if you read 1 Corinthians in the right context, that's exactly what he's doing to them. Now, if anyone has caused me grief, he's not done so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him, now everybody's wondering who is him. Uh, Virtually everybody agrees, all theologians, that he's talking about this guy that he said kick out of the church that was having sex with his stepmom or mom or whatever. Uh, the, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him. So apparently, this guy is devastated, which was the point of the discipline. Because uh, there weren't other churches. See, if you ask somebody to leave a church here, they just go to the other church down the street. <laughs> and there's not really that much of an impact on them. Back in that day, Christianity was a big, wonderful experience. They kicked you out. 
there was no place else to go. You're just thrown back out in a pagan world. And once you've really experienced a thriving, loving church experience where God, again, is doing all these great miracles, and now you're shoved out of the door, there's no place else to go, he was devastated and wanted to repent and wanted to come back into the church. So he says, now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow, okay? So uh, now uh, in verse 12, he's writing, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. This is where he's now writing this letter. And we can go to Acts where it talks about that's what he's doing. So he comes to Troas. He doesn't find Titus. He goes into Macedonia. And now he sends another letter ahead to Corinth. Number one, explaining why he didn't come the last time he threatened to come. Because he says, I was so mad you didn't want me to show up, you know, uh, which we read in the first chapter. So now it's from here that he writes this letter, and this letter's much different, and we're going to start reading it now. Here he talks much more about Christian theology, not so much about the rules of how to run a church, which is still being debated to this day, what he meant by some of these rules and stuff. Some were very clear, those we follow. The ones were not so clear, everybody's kind of muddled, and you know, it's not repeated anywhere else in the Bible, so we pretty much just, you know, you go on with it. But now... This isn't the rules so much about how to think. He's not mad at anybody. Uh, now he just starts to explain more the Christian experience, although he still at times jumps back into a very defensive mode because there's people still giving him grief. I don't know why they were giving him grief. I have no idea. I have heard that at times pastors get grief. <laughs> I wouldn't know what they're talking about, but apparently it's been known to happen. So... Uh, there are people there who are still giving him grief and having. So you will see as we read this, as he explains things, and he explains it brilliantly as he talks about the theology of our faith and who we are and what's going on. At times he gets very defensive. Sometimes he gets sar- sarcastic. <laughs> Can't imagine a preacher doing that. Uh, as, as he's trying to explain where he's coming from. All right? So um, we'll jump down to... Uh, Verse 17, because this is actually where we left off. He's explaining why they're in Macedonia and how they're preaching the gospel. And he makes this statement. Okay, so here now we're picking it up. Verse 17, uh, chapter 2. We always have it on the screens. Actually, if you have, if you do have a Bible uh, that you read, some people don't. They just look up on iPads and stuff like that. That's fine. Uh, but I would encourage you, if you have them, bring it with you. It would be good for you to actually hold it and look and get, see what's going on and put it in context and stuff. All right? So now, unlike so many, Paul says, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Who is he talking about? I don't know. It doesn't say, and everything is pure conjecture at this point. Uh, there's certainly a lot of people today that preach the gospel for profit. Uh, you know, we see them, the big televangelists and this, that, and the other. You know, you want to choke sometimes when you listen to these guys selling this and that and the other, and they're... Man, they are making big muko bucks. Uh, Paul says, that's not what we do. And apparently, there were people, even way back then, who were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as a way to make a living, to make money. 
And he says, unlike those who peddle the word of God for profit, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Now we start chapter three. And remember, the Bible was not written in chapters. This, all of this, one book was all the way through. These are letters. He didn't stop and write in chapters anymore. You and I write in chapters when we send emails. <laughs> the chapters and verses were added later just so there'd be a point of reference so you could find stuff. I forget, when was this? 1500s or 1600s? I don't know, whenever they finally came up. Some guy, one guy pretty much did the whole thing. Uh, some of it's real bizarre because he breaks up sentences, but all in all, you got a hand to the dude. He pretty much nailed it. It's very, it's amazing. That's how we can say, go to chapter whatever, verse whatever. That's how we find it. So anyway, it's not a chapter, but here we go. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, again, he's, now he's being defensive and he's being a little sarcastic to them because he's getting grief from people. And so what do I, I got to have a letter of recommendation from somebody, you know? Uh, and then he goes on and actually says some real interesting things. Verse two, he says, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. He's saying, I don't need letters from anybody. You're my letter. You're the proof of what I've been doing and what I've been trying to do. When people look at you, uh, you are an open letter to the world. That's really a beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, that's the way we should be. As Christians everywhere, we are supposed to be an open letter to the world. They should be able to look in and read our book and see our lives and, and, and uh, how we're growing in our faith. Um, so he says, you show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Uh, pretty famous quote right there. Um, oftentimes we'll quote this verse when you're trying to stop someone who's just trying to use the Bible to beat the snot out of somebody. Right? Well, the Bible says this. About, yeah, well, the letter kills, you know. Just be easy. Don't have to be so harsh. Although literally what he's talking about is the Old Testament. Okay? The Old Testament uh, was very strict and very severe. The new covenant that we live in, so he's trying to explain this to them. We live in a new covenant. They didn't have, I mean, they're just reading the letter for the first time here. Some, a lot of this hasn't even been written yet. So this is all new. What they did have access to, because many of them were Jewish Christians, they did have the Old Testament. Uh, but he's really letting them know there's a difference between the Old Testament experience and the New Testament experience. And for the life of me, I still do not understand why so many Christians today take their cues from the Old Testament. I think we can learn from the Old Testament. I think there's wonderful insights in the Old Testament. The Psalms are amazing. The Proverbs are filled with wisdom. I think there's stuff we can certainly glean from it, but we don't live by those laws, okay? When people start, you know, getting all crazy, they say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to do this. The Bible says you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to have, you know, that, this, and the other. And they almost always, 99.9% .9 of the time, are quoting the Old Testament, you know? Some guy comes to you and says, you know, Christians aren't supposed to eat pork. No, Jews aren't supposed to eat pork. We're not Jews, all right? You know, uh, you know Christians say, you know, 
Usually, it's, God bless them, some of the older generation just <laughs> need to lighten up a bit. But they'll scream and holler about people having tattoos. The Old Testament, you know, the Bible says not to have tattoos. Well, in the Old Testament, it talked about stuff like that. You know, we're not supposed to have a Christmas tree because you know what? Well, in the Old Testament, they weren't supposed to have. The, I mean, all of this stuff, you know, who you can marry, who you couldn't marry, all these things, whenever they start pulling out and they get on the radio and start foaming at the mouth and start going nuts about this, that, and the other, you know, homosexuals are supposed to be killed. They're quoting from the Old Testament. We don't live by the Old Testament. And by the way, never feel obligated to defend it. Because whenever someone who is a non-believer, who's intelligent, attacks Christianity, they will quote verses from the Old Testament. Why do they go to that city and kill all those people? And, you know, did God want them to get killed? Is God a killer? Is it, you know, whenever anybody throws anything jacked up from the Old Testament, just look at them and say, you know, I'm not a Jew. Ask a rabbi. Let me tell you about the New Testament. I'm a Christian. I'm serious. Just deflect it. We are not obligated. You know, because they did all kinds of jacked up crazy things in the Old Testament. I mean, who's, was it? who's a jacked up dude who goes to battle and he says to God, God, if you give me the victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing I see that comes out of my tent. Anybody remember his name? I can't think of his name. Anyway, look it up. <laughs> so, when he comes home, the first thing that comes out of his tent is his daughter. And the Bible says he sacrificed his daughter. Now, theologians, even Christian theologians, have jumped backwards through hoops trying to explain it all away. Well, he didn't really, because he probably, no, I think he really did it. I think he was that jacked up crazy. Well, then why did God do that? It didn't say God had anything to do with it. Just says this idiot said that. And I think it's a little funny. Lord, I'll kill the first thing that comes out of my tent. Who do you think he expected to see coming out of his tent? The old lady. <laughs> right? What's else going to come out of his tent? Lord, I'll kill the first thing I see out of my tent. And he goes to war, he comes back, and he's expecting to knock off the old lady. Well, his daughter comes out, and you know, I've swore this vow before the Lord. And they're just they're crazy people. They were, this is during a time where they didn't even understand God, by and large, especially in the judges when all this stuff was going on. They did crazy, nutsoid things. That anybody's going to get in your face and give you a hard time about your faith, you're going to quote something jacked up from the Old Testament, just look at them and say, you know, that's really the Jewish thing. Talk to a rabbi. And rabbis have wonderful explanations for it. Let them work on it. <laughs> really, why don't we don't, I'm, I, I never feel obligated to explain any of that stuff. I just say, look, I'm a Christian. Do you understand the difference? And they'll look at you kind of freaked out. Well, it's the Bible. I know, but the first part of the Bible is the Jewish Old Testament. We live by the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me talk to you about that. Let's discuss that. We don't kill people. We don't come into nations and cities and wipe out people. We don't, you know, we don't hate people. We forgive people. All this stuff, which is the difference in Christianity, right? We experience God. We don't need to go through you know, all the crazy stuff they went through in the Old Testament and, and whatever. So. so anyway, so now Paul is trying to give them an A.B., all right, here's the Old Testament. Now here's the New Testament. He says the Old Testament, the letter kills. But the Spirit, which is what we're living now in the New Testament, experiencing God, gives life. So now then he goes on and he starts to explain. Now, the only thing that you can figure here is the only way they'd even know what he's talking about 
is there had to be a, because we do know that when he first went in, everywhere he went, the first place he'd go to is where? Jewish synagogue. First thing you do. So that's, he'd always do that. So he would get converts from Judaism right away. And then the other Jews would get really mad at him and kick him out. And then he'd go to the heathens. And then the heathens would come. So uh, by this time, there's a big mixture of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish. Most of them at this point become non-Jewish Christians. But he starts using Old Testament uh, stories and stuff like that, that the, but for the presence of the Jewish Christians, nobody knows what he's talking about. So anyway, some of you won't even know what I'm talking about. I'll explain it to you. It's why you're here. All right? So here we go. Now, in verse 7, now, if the ministry that brought death, talking about the Old Testament, which was engraved in letters on stone, what's he talking about? Ten Commandments. Remember? Thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt, all these Ten Commandments. And that's just the beginning. There were way more than ten. That was the ten in the stone. The rest of this are all the other rules. <laughs> you know, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, rah, 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 you know, what you could wear, when you could work, when you couldn't work. I mean, they had rules about everything. He says, so if the old ministry was engraved in letters on stone, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory, trans transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? What is he talking about? Already I've lost half of you. All right? This is what happened. In the Old Testament account, when Moses was talking to God and he comes out, the Bible said his face was glowing like a light bulb. Just which I suppose you sit down and have a chat with God. You're going to glow for a while. All right? So he comes back and it freaked the willies out of them. Everybody was scared to death of Moses. And the only way that Moses could even function was they had to put a veil over his face because the light was so creepy to them and it was so intense. Now, as time went over, it eventually wore off. That's why he's saying it was, uh, uh, what's the word, Tra transitory. In other words, it wasn't a permanent thing. It eventually wore off and then he could take off the veil. But he was so glowing. Now what he's saying is if the Old Testament law of the do's and don'ts came with glory, and there was a certain degree of glory. I mean, God shows up, boom, I mean, all this stuff that's happening, the miracles, you know, let my people go, all this stuff, Moses glowing like a light bulb. I mean, this is all, this is heavy stuff. He says, if that came with glory, how much more the ministry of the Spirit that we experience is even more glorious? You say, well, how's it more glorious? We're not glowing like light bulbs. Well, it's different but it's actually more glorious. And it's, what really makes it glorious is it's not contained to one person. We can all experience it. And I promise you, to some degree, you are glowing a light, a light bulb to the world around you. Uh, people will actually notice a difference about you. You really start walking with God, especially when you first become a Christian, your family, your friends, what happened to you? There's something different about it. They can tell. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's a different kind of glory, but he said it's even more glorious. He goes on, if, in verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, why did it bring condemnation? Because it condemned you for everything you did. If you didn't act just right, there was heavy punishments. And, and by the way, these Jack and Ninny morons who are my brothers in Christ, <laughs> who go on railing against homosexuals and stuff like that, you know, they're very selective 
what they pick on. Homosexuals should be killed. In the Old Testament, yeah, but almost everybody should have been killed. Right? If you use God's name in vain, you should be killed. Pretty much sure that takes out a whole bunch of you right here. All right? If you disobeyed your parents, you should be killed. It would take out the other half of you. All right? And there's more. There's more stuff. I mean, it was like really intense. It was, you know, again, why Christians feel drawn back into this mosaic law and stuff. They're out of their ever-loving minds. And they're very being selected. When they, well, the Bible says this should happen to that kind of person. Stop it. You have no business doing that. We don't live like that. That's not what Christianity is about. Jesus loved people that nobody else would love. Okay? And had grace for them. Now, it doesn't mean you should go around cursing and doing all sorts of sexually immoral things. I get that. But we don't kill people. Praise the Lord. Because I would be at the top of the killed list. All right, so that was the ministry of condemnation. It was glorious. But how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has not, has, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, which he's talking about Christianity. What the religion and the Jews of the don't had its own set of, you know, expression of God and was glorious in its own right. He says it's in no comparison to what we're experiencing now in Christianity. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Because what we have doesn't wear off. What we have will last you through eternity. And he's going to go on a little bit later and tell you what you have right now is just a piece. It's a little piece. It's called the earnest. It's the down payment. It's like when you know you got a deal, somebody gives you a down payment, you know, if they're serious. He says, how you know God is serious about you is he gave you a piece of this. And it's the peace that comes into your heart and the light of God that comes into your life and the weight of sin that's lifted off your shoulders and all this wonderful thing that we experience as Christians is... Not something that goes away. It will go on forever, and when we finally kick the bucket, however that comes, you will be launched into the full-blown glory of God. And it's something which he'll talk about in a minute, is something that's greatly desirable. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only Christ, in Christ is it taken away. So he's really being critical towards his original. And this guy was a Pharisee. He was one of the most respected leaders of Judaism of his day. He was the one that was going out and killing Christians. Remember Paul? And then he gets saved dramatically. And he's saying, look, even those who today still teach that old covenant, uh, they still have a veil over their eyes. And the closest comparison today, and this isn't to be mean to anybody, but a lot of traditional churches don't really talk so much about the life of God and the relationship with God. They talk rules and regulations. And a lot of these people, even though from birth they've been following all these rules and regulations, it's like they still have a cloth over their eyes. And they don't see this. Even in the name of Christianity, many churches have created almost the same thing that Judaism had. 
where people all their lives are going through rules and rituals, but they're not really seeing things clearly because they've never really experienced God's grace in their life. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's what happens when you come to Christ. That's what happened to you. That's what happened. If it hasn't happened, I hope it will happen and you'll surrender your life to Christ. But that's what changes. That's why people are here. That's why we go to church. Because all of a sudden, that thing that you couldn't see anymore, now you can see. Life is clearer. Makes no- now, we still have challenges. There's still faith. I get that. But do you remember what it was like without Jesus in your life? Man, it's pretty icky. And it's dark and it's cold, and everything's not very clear. When you come to Jesus, all of a sudden, all that is lifted away, and you can start experiencing God's glory. Now, we're growing more and more in that, but it never gets old. It only gets stronger and better. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Hallelujah. How do you know that the Spirit of God is somewhere? Because there is a liberty and a freedom. Because wherever the Spirit of God is, there's always freedom. It's what people sense when they come into our worship services, and they can tell this is really different, okay? It's not just because of the music. It's not just because of the incredibly, overwhelmingly handsome pastor. It's because the Spirit of God is here, and they can sense something is different. I'll never forget when I first experienced this. Uh, I was 16 years of old of age. I was a, a young hippie and uh, <laughs> doing drugs and playing rock and roll and stuff. And one of the coolest hippies in our town, because he was like the cool hippie. We were like the mini hippies. And the mini hippies want to be like the cool hippie. So he's the coolest hippie in town. And we hear he becomes a Jesus freak. But we didn't even have that word yet. This was early on. This is, remember that whole movement and stuff like that? He was like one of the first guys. He, he became a Christian. What do you mean a Christian? What does that mean? Yeah. And I'll never forget, we are uh, in our basement. The air is filled with pot smoke. <laughs> you know, uh, the colored lights, the music. is a typical lovely environment. And uh, this guy comes walking in, and I'm telling you, it was like he was glowing. It's just like, whoa, what happened to you? And he sat down, and we started asking him questions, and he started sharing with us about Jesus. And it was so cool. Now, he didn't really know what he was talking about. Be- he didn't. He'd only been a Christian for like a week. And he starts telling about all these things that are in the Bible, which I found out later it was wrong. Almost everything he said was wrong. The only thing he said was right was, you can experience Jesus Christ. He can come into your life. I'll never forget it to the day, well, throughout eternity, I'll never forget it. It was the day that I came to know Jesus, and I'm listening to him, and I'm just being enthralled, and all of a sudden, it was like the channel changed. Well, no, I wasn't even hearing what he's saying anymore. I could see Jesus on the cross looking at me, saying that I love you, and I did this for you. That's what I got out of that. And I just started crying. (laughs) And I said, man, pray with me. He said, no, I'm not done yet. So he kept talking about, but three times I had to ask him to shut up before he finally prayed with me. And I'll never forget, it was like a weight got lifted off my shoulders. And I'm telling you, my life was different from that day to this very day. So this is the glorious thing that we share. We all share this. So, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all, who with unveiled faces, we have unveiled faces, we can see clearly now, uh, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You say, Pastor, I don't really have as much as what you're talking right now. Good. 
That's okay. That's why you're here. You will grow. You grow in this. It only gets better. The more you give yourself to Christ, the better it gets. The more you get this inside of you, the more it transforms you. That's why I encourage you, come to church. Come to these Bible studies. The more you do this, the better your life will be. I absolutely guarantee it. There's no question about it. A year from, as I've said many times, a year from today, the people who will be struggling the most in our churches are the people who don't come to these meetings. They don't come to the Bible studies, and they come to church on occasion. They will be the ones calling me, and their lives are a disaster. Happens all the time. Happens every time. The disasters I deal with now are from people who a year or two ago weren't coming either. The people who do this are the ones your life gets better. It gets stronger. It gets healthier. We're transformed from glory to glory is part of the Christian experience. So the neat thing about it is if you grow in your faith, it doesn't have to be about that one moment, whatever, where you felt warm and fuzzy. It gets better. And I can honestly say it's better today than it was 45 or so years ago (laughs) when I asked Jesus into my life because uh, uh, this image is we receive ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. All right. Chapter 4, which again is not a chapter. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. See, and, and I promise you, the one thing that encourages me more than anything is when I see people living a successful, when I see you guys living a successful life, when I go to Appleton and they're all growing in their faith and they're lit up like Christmas trees and I go to Stevens Point and you meet these people and those of you I've known for 15 years are continuing to grow in your faith. Nothing is more encouraging to me than that. When we had that baptismal service last week, you have no idea what it does to us pastors. Because, you know, there's, there's days, seriously, because you hear the crazy and people struggling and things not going right and you got this concern and that concern and stuff. And it's easy to ask yourself, am I making any difference at all? And I've had these conversations many times with myself. There's days where you feel, what's the point? What difference is this making? Am I, you know, maybe they should put me out to pasture. <laughs> You know, and uh, but then you see last Wednesday and you see almost 50 people in our congregation making a public proclamation of Jesus Christ changing their lives and being baptized. Wow. How cool is that? So he says, because it's the kind of ministry we have, we don't lose heart. Why is he saying that? Because he should lose heart because his life, as he's about to tell us, sucks. It does. He has just an awful experience, this guy. His life is brutal. Uh, And in fact, you know, the Bible says you reap what you sow, right? Uh, When Jesus came to Paul and he converted, and this guy has been killing Christians and he's nasty stuff, Jesus told him, I'm going to show you what things you must suffer now in the kingdom of God. And he suffered greatly. But even through the difficulties that he had, people tried to kill him and persecute him and make his life miserable, uh, he had all this joy. So anyway, he says, rather than get losing heart, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Because there are people who it's like they don't see it. 
They don't see it. We all have people like that. You talk to them, they, they don't see it. And, and what do I do, Pastor? How do I get them to see it? I don't know the way you get them to see it. I think you just pray that God will open their eyes. It could be your kids. It could be your mom, your dad, whatever. I mean, that's, that's why you want to pray for these people. At the end of the day, the reason you came to Jesus is because Jesus called you and pulled away the veil from your eyes. And all of a sudden, you could see something that maybe you had never clearly seen before. So he says in verse 4, the God of this age, who's he talking about? Satan. Satan. That's the God of this age. Notice the, the small g. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan literally blinds their minds. You can try and... That, that's why it's always fruitless to argue with anybody. Again, you get somebody giving you a hard time want to explain the Old Testament, just talk to a rabbi, talk to me about the new part. And even then... Uh, there's nothing you can say. People always ask, how can I say? You know, like there's some magic word or some intellectual trick you can use on people to convince them of Jesus. No. You share the love of God with them, but pray for them that God will open their eyes. That's what we need to do. Pray for people, people that you care about in your life, that God would open their eyes, remove the blinders, pray against the power of Satan in their lives that is blinding them. For what we preach is not ourselves, he says, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made this light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, he's not talking about the band. <laughs> Those of you who listen to Christian radio, Christian music, you all know jars of clay. That's where they got the name from this. Uh, we, what he's, what he's talking about is we're human beings. This, we're a jar of clay, literally. If you don't believe me, look at yourself. After you die, you'll turn back into clay. It'll, you know, we all go back to dust. From dust we were made, that's the reference to clay. Uh, dust with a little water, Whew, here we are. Uh, and then we're going to go back the other way. So this incredible treasure, this amazing thing that I've been talking about, you know where God hides it? in jars of clay. All of us. So, uh, you know, so that we can show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, you see. So you want people to see the glory. So some of you need to be not just pots, but crackpots. So, 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 so the glory comes out. And then he starts to tell about his life, how much his life sucks. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is this guy's life. You think you have a hard time. I'm sure there's days you feel crushed, perplexed, and struck down. We all do uh, at emotional and mental levels. He's literally talking <laughs> physical attacks in his life. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus why? So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. In a way, he's, he's, what he's saying, because sometimes we all get frustrated. You ever feel discouraged because you're not quite all together? Except Bob. You know, 
Do you ever feel that way, you guys? You know, you say, oh, I just feel bad because I, Pastor, I should do this and I shouldn't do that and, and I have my issues and God can't use me because of, you don't understand. Where God gets glorified is these imperfect jars of clay is what's carrying around his glory to people around you. This is what God is using you. He's hiding in you. You just need to let him out, you know? Say, well, I got my issues. Welcome to the club. <laughs> We all have our issues. Hopefully, we grow from glory to glory, and we have less issues than we have today, right? That's what it's supposed to be. The old saying, you know, I'm not what I used to be, but thank God. Oh, I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, all right? That's the Christian experience. We all have room, <laughs> room for improvement. Uh, don't feel bad. It's actually, he said, I'm carrying around the death of Jesus in my body, my life is hard, it's awful. There's all these things that I deal with, but yet it's in this context that God is glorified. Uh, for verse 11, he says, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Now, not necessarily physical death, but all kinds of versions of suckiness in life. So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since I have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us uh, with you to himself. Praise. And I see these are people. They did not, their main focus in life wasn't their house. Their main focus in life wasn't their job. Their main, now we all got to deal with that stuff. But their main focus in life is let's live the kind of life that glorifies God because the good news is we die. That's what he's saying. The good news is we die. woo Because it's, you know, we leave this... Imp Don't get frustrated. This life is imperfect. It is imperfect. It's hard. You know, things break. Things don't work. People are people. You know, we all have our issues. The dog poops on the carpet again. A life, whatever it is. You work for a moron... You know, I'm not anybody at my church, but Emma, you work for a moron and, and you deal with stuff. Okay, listen, I can be a handful, I promise you. Ask these guys, you know. Uh, you know. Life can be hard. All the good news is we die. Don't get upset because life isn't perfect and they weren't consumed about trying to get everything perfect and my house perfect, my car perfect, everything perfect, my retirement perfect, everything. Just, man, don't get consumed by life. You got to live life. I get it. We all got to live it. I got to live it just like you, all right? But that's not supposed to be our focus. Our focus is this is a temporary place. Our focus is supposed to be on eternal things. The good news is we get out of here, okay? All this is for your benefit, he says, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Isn't that cool? Can, can you look at your own problems that way? Check that out. You, you ought to memorize that verse. For our light and momentary troubles. Now, the thing is, when you're going through them, they don't feel very light, and they don't feel very momentary. All right? But they are compared to eternity. What we're going through is just a hiccup. These are light, they are momentary troubles that we go through. 
but we are reaching an eternal glory that will far outweigh them all. So, as a result, he says in verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is not seen is eternal. How do you do that? How do you focus your eyes on what is not seen? Right? That's what we want to do. Don't get so myopic and focus on the cares of life. Jesus warned us about the cares of life. You remember he gave the parable about the seeds, you know, planting the seeds and some seeds grew and some didn't. And, some, and he talked about seeds that fell among thorns. And even though the seeds came to life when they grew up, the, the thorns choked them and killed them. And later his disciples said, what did that mean? He says, those thorns are the cares of life. You let life suck the life out of you. You're not going to experience everything we were just talking about here. I get it. We all deal with life. And we need to be there for each other and encourage each other because sometimes this is really hard. It is. Even though he calls them light and momentary, they don't feel like that. There's times when we need people to help us, pray for us, encourage us. There's times you will cry your little eyeballs out because everything seems to be, well, not everything seems, everything is going wrong. But the thing is, we're just passing through this life. Don't get so caught up in the day-to-day life that you let it suck the spiritual life out of you. That's our challenge. Because how many know you got to go to work tomorrow? How many know you got to pay bills? How many know you got to plan for this and plan for that? Now we, I know, but don't get so obsessed. Because that's what people in the world without Jesus do. They just live by this stuff. That's their whole life. Just <laughs> all that stuff. Now, we still have to do that stuff, but we're not supposed to be going crazy for that stuff. Our focus is what we cannot see. Say, how do you do that? By faith. By faith. Your focus, we set our eyes on, he says, stuff we cannot see. Love, joy, peace, kindness, eternal life, giving into the kingdom of God. That's why giving an offering can be so painful (laughs) because I need that money, right? I need that money. But what are you doing? You're sowing into eternity. Well, I can't see where it's going. Welcome to the club, all right? That's it. That's, the, that's where you're setting your eyes on things you cannot see. Because if you set your things on, eyes on things that you can see, it doesn't last. Those are temporal. But when we set our things, eyes on what we cannot see, that stuff is eternal. All right? Hallelujah. All right, we're done. And... Uh, We'll let y'all go. You guys, the campus can hang out here. You can hang out. Don't forget your kids at 8 o'clock. <laughs> but right now, you can just kind of fellowship, hang out in, in the foyer and stuff. Uh, I forgot to pass the offering around. Did we pass it around? We did. Okay. Hit it on the way out. <laughs> Randy will have a bucket back there. Try to go out that way. All right. God bless you guys. See you later.